right, let's get our Bibles. We're going to stay in 1 John tonight. May go to a few other places, but I think tonight is more along the lines of a devotional, just because of how the Word reads here. But we have now, we've gotten into one of the most important chapters of the book. When you hear devotion and you hear apologetics, you know, those are two different things, of course. Apologetics is the defense of something. So when you think of Christian apologetics, what are some of the things you think of? Well, the argument for creation. Um, of course, people are apologists for eternal security. People are apologists for what the timing of the rapture will be, post, mid, uh, pre. And, and some people spend their entire lives in those fields. When we read the Bible in a devotional sense, we're, we're doing it in two ways, really. Number one, what is the Word of God saying? Not to me in my interpretation, but what is it saying plainly? And then what of those things that I read can I apply? When we see the genealogies in like First and Second Chronicles, those are good histories. They're, they're good things that we can see the line of Christ come through the history of Israel. But is there maybe an application to that? Like can we go into our day applying the lineage of Christ? Probably not. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But one of the beauties of the New Testament is there's a lot of application for us. I spoke really strongly this morning about the law, the intent of the law. I don't want you to think that just because the law no, no, it, you know, no longer has any spiritual weight for the believer that we're just floating in the sea of Christianity out here. You, you and I have a lot of responsibilities that God very clearly gives to us. I, I always marvel when I hear people say, well, you've got to be perfect to get to heaven, and uh, I'm doing that. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping the law. I'm, I'm doing everything that God has said. And it's like, boy, if that's how God expected believers to be, there would be no New Testament because everyone would just know automatically. There'd be no need to tell people to stop doing something they shouldn't do because they wouldn't do it in the first place. I mean, the New Testament is full of examples for us. 1 Corinthians 10 is a really good picture of that. Uh, if you remember when we did our study in there, Paul is telling the Gentiles in Corinth and the Jews who were there too, do you remember what happened in Israel when they mocked God and he gave them enough meat to come out of their eyes? <laughs> you remember the sons of Korah who tried to rebel against Moses and the earth literally opened, them, uh, opened up underneath them and swallowed them in? You remember that? Those are examples of things not to do. And we have examples of things not to do all over the world. I don't know how many of you are, are, are keen on news and politics, but I saw something this week that's just, it, it's just kind of sickening. I'm, I'm sure you all have heard about Jeffrey Epstein and the whole island thing that he had going on. When you take a closer look at the music industry, the secular music industry, it is silently screaming paganism. I mean, they never say that they're a part of the Illuminati, which I don't believe in the Illuminati or anything. I just know there's spiritual wickedness in high places. But recently, one of these, you know, young uh, Grammy-nominated singers, she came as a sacrifice to one of the little dinners or events that they're doing where there's a lot of, uh, you know, paparazzi and stuff. She was just dressed in all red. And it was scary. Like, she had her hair removed in the outfit. She was, it was you know, she's just a lady, the figure of a lady, but she looks demonic. Her, eye, her eyelids were painted red, her entire body just red, and I thought, man, how more obvious can they get? I, I don't know why we participate in that scene. I don't know why that Christians want to be in that scene, because th those, those people don't want it. They, that whole system does not want God's way. It is set to do its own thing. Yet people love it. And they're so excited to do that themselves. And it's happening to our kids. Our kids are seeing this. They're listening to this kind of music that is very, it's not subtle anymore. It's full on. And it's just leading people into, into further paths of wickedness, satanic practices. And when you think about studying the Bible devotionally, you think about stuff like that. I mean, how often do we study the ways of the world and try to be like the world? And, you know, forget the music part of it where there's some clearly secular stuff. The financial part of this world can be very, very uh, lucrative as well in the way that it pulls us out of what God wants us to do. So we've been called to something higher, okay? And, and that, that should get your ears 
perked up, and you should be able to, to see that from what the Scripture says here. This is, I think, the most important chapter in the book, because it lays the foundation for what the believer's life should look like. We're always talking about there is no evidence if a person is saved, and that is true. The only evidence, if there is one, is what they say about Christ. But there is evidence for spiritual growth. And before we get into the Word, I just want to share with you what made this church so attractive to me as I started coming here as a teenager. People really loved me. It was more than just they loved seeing me. Do you, do you understand the difference? When it's like, oh, you know, because you're here, people are excited about you. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this person really gets it because they're here all the time. I mean, when I came to Calvary Community Church, I had teachers in Sunday school and in Awana that cared about me. It was more than just, oh, they're here, so that's good, so now we just keep an eye on them and teach them the Bible. They asked me questions about my life, about the things I wanted to do. Some of you don't know this. I haven't told this story in a long time, but the first time I ever felt, and I'm not a big feelings person, but in this case, the first time I felt like this is maybe something I want to do for the rest of my life was here. In this pul- in, not this pul- pulpit here, but the one that's in the back building now for the college. But it was an Awana competition. And there were a lot of different things you could do. The Awana games were happening, I think, down at the University of Tampa. And so there were a lot of things that were being prepared. I mean, kids were running all sorts of stuff. And that was just not what my teachers thought was best for me. I don't know whose idea it was. It may have, may have been Andrew Nowojcik. I don't know. But somebody said that I should enter into the public speaking part of the competition. Now, I was already, already like a pretty outgoing guy. It was easy for me to get in front of people and necessarily like put on a show. I loved playing the trumpet. I loved kind of being the center of attention for humor, at least. I just liked that. That was something that came naturally to me. So when someone said, you should do a public speaking competition in Awana, I thought, oh, that's great. But they gave me the verses and the seven steps to the gospel. I had it on a little piece of paper. Some of the hymnals you have may actually have that piece of paper inside of it. It was that same paper. And it was, you know, effective soul winning, how to be a good personal worker, and, you know, talking to people, getting to the point where you can share the gospel. I remember combing over those seven points of the gospel and, and feeling so happy that there were Bible verses for everything that was said, that it wasn't just these are the tenets of the church that I went to, that every point that was made in that gospel presentation had a Bible verse. And it made me feel strong, like physically strong. I felt like I could win any argument with anybody who denied the existence of God or said that works were required for salvation. And I prepared for three weeks. And in that three-week period, I would come into this auditorium and I'd give the gospel, I'd give the gospel. And each time I I kind of knew what I was going to do, but I was slacking off until the very end, uh, procrastinating, kind of a hallmark of what I was when I was a teenager. Even a little bit today, I'll be honest with you. (laughs) Sometimes I may wait a little too long. But I remember getting to the night when we were going to compete necessarily, and there were a couple other kids that did their part. There were a bunch of people in the auditorium. And when my turn came up and I gave the gospel, I felt as if there was nothing more important in the world for me to do with the rest of my life than that. I can't describe it to you. Not saying that you have to feel that in order for it to be true. But for me, I believe it was the Lord calling me into that ministry. I didn't realize it then, but it it just felt so natural to teach about how a person can know they're going to heaven. It was totally, it was the broadest stroke that you could paint with. Anyone can do this. Anybody can put their faith in Christ. There were no limits. I mean, as a musician, there's tons of limits in your musical life. Okay, a brass player can't play a woodwind instrument. Just not going to work. You know how woodwinds work, by the way? It's two very, very thin pieces of wood that are made slick by your saliva. Gross, right? And then they, they kind of like vibrate together and make a little noise. And then, of course, your instrument receives the noise and the little keys that you press manipulate that tone. That's how you get a clarinet, a saxophone, all that kind of stuff. If you're a woodwind player, it's a totally different mindset than a brass player. Brass player, it's the same thing. You're creating a very, very small noise that's being amplified by your instrument, but you're, you're moving your mouth in a total different way. 
There, there was range. There was only so low that I could go. There was only so high that I could go. There were pieces where my part, what was written, is what I had to play. I couldn't just make something up off the spot until I got into jazz band. And even then, that had restrictions. But when I saw the gospel, it was just like, man, this is open and free for everybody, and it costs nothing. Why wouldn't people want to do this? Why isn't it something that people want to do? And as I got excited about the gospel and I finished that Awana competition, you know, the fire went out. Because it wasn't until much later in my life that people taught me the importance of discipleship. And I've seen this. People get on fire for the Lord and they know the gospel and they lead souls to Christ, but then they don't do anything else. They just sit and think that they've met their biggest responsibility to be a soul winner, but then they stop soul winning. And they don't pray, they don't read their Bible, and things just fall off. That never happened here at Calvary because at each step of my Christian life, there was somebody who loved me. And I mean they really loved me. They cared about me enough to ask tough questions. There was a, a man who used to be here in ministry. His name is Peter Amato. That guy challenged me in, in ways that irritated me so much. It just seemed like, why are you always in my business? Why are you always, you know, just so like, like nitpicky with me? But I see it now. The guy loved me. He, and, and I could see it then at that time, but I was too big in my own eyes to get out of my own way. But I could see he was setting up things in me that I could see in the scripture of how to be a better man of God. That, that affects how I plan to be a father, how I, how I plan to pastor, all those different things. But it took somebody loving me. The church that I grew up in, it was all about participation. There was Thursday night visitation where we would go and knock on people's doors and literally, guys, I'm not kidding you, literally put words in their mouths and then say, praise God, they trusted Christ. I, I've seen men lead other men in prayers where it's just vain repetition. You don't even know if they believe it, but they repeat it after me, so mark it down, brother. And then everybody would eat in the fellowship hall together, and it was, just, it was so fake. It was so fake. Then as soon as you stop coming for a month or two, guess what? Boy, I, I knew it about them. I knew it. They weren't real serious. Sally, that's how a lot of churches work. That's why when you ask people to come to church, they do things like this. Nah, <laughs> no. What's the first thing they say? Bunch of hypocrites there, right? How many of you have heard that response? It's almost everybody. You've probably felt that way. If, I, if I'm being honest, you've probably felt that way. Well, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites, but we make it worse because we don't know how to love people. We know how to accept people that we like, Right? but we don't know how to love people. And the only example that we have of what is love so that we can demonstrate it is on that empty cross. That's the example. That's why this chapter is so important. If you remember, John had just gotten finished telling them not to, to be careful listening to every spirit that they heard. And of course, we clarified what he meant by spirit, not some spiritual realm thing, but people. And then last week, we went through what love is, it was actually defined, and now we're going to see how we can put it into practice. But I tell you those stories in the beginning because that's what makes this, at least that's what helped me the most out of this ministry. Outside of the clear Bible teaching, it was clear examples of Christian living. I didn't see that anywhere else in my life. And I'm so glad that I, I saw it early because you may have people that you're trying to win that'll probably never get won in a church. They'll never get saved in a church because they hate it. They have too many experiences about it. Well, that doesn't mean they can't get saved. That means you have to be the picture of God's love in their life. It's a wonderful and awesome responsibility to love like God loved. And you're going to actually see one of the ways that God is revealed to people is through the believer in how we love one another and love them, the lost person. That's an awesome responsibility. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by that, but I do want you to check within your own self, am I loving to people? When we prayed earlier in my prayer, I talked about you know, the systematic approach that I have. 
Boy, if that's not the truth, it's the same thing every week. I go into my office, I sit down, and I work. And I read, and I do emails, and I answer stuff, and, you know, just prepare. I have a calendar outlaid, you know, laid out for me. I just follow the path. And sometimes when God wants to disrupt that path with a random phone call, they could literally, folks, go for hours. I'm not kidding you. Sometimes these, these calls, they go forever. Or a Zoom call or a hospital visit or someone's in need and, and they need help or the water's gushing out of the front of the church. Whatever it is, it's like I'm, I, I'm, if I'm not careful, I'm so protective of the system, of the process that I don't see the reason for the system and process. You just get in the rat race. How many of y'all have been there? Clock in, keep your head down, clock out. Hey, this is me time, dog. This is for me. I, I don't know what you want. This is what I want. We got to be careful of that. That's a life that is pointed to yourself. A selfless life is doing whatever is necessary for others so that they come to faith in Christ. And after that, we're to love them and encourage them in spiritual growth. That's something that we can do, and God will reward you for it. And I'll talk about all that as we get into the Scripture. But just a recap, starting there in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the second time that word is used in this book. It's used in other places in the New Testament. Propitiation. But I want you to note the reminder as we're recapping before we get into the new content. There in verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. That's how love was manifested to the believer before they were a believer. Death. Blood. A resurrection. Somebody stepping in your place and taking your consequences on himself. It's just so different than what the world says love is. I'm doing marriage counseling right now. Premarital counseling with a couple. And in that you know, we're walking through what marriage is. It's a covenant between the man, the woman, and God verified by many witnesses. Marriage is not ordained by the state. You're not married because the state of Florida said so. A long time ago, the way this country was set up, marriage was honored because God said it was to be honored. And then we got to talk about communication. We got to talk about money. You got to talk about sex in a marriage. You've got to talk about children. You've got to talk about the point of marriage, the difficulties, the triumphs in marriage. But it all is laid on love, folks. But the world says, love is what is good for you. Who's at the center of that message? You are at the center of that message. Where's anybody else? Well, I love her as long as she loves me and does X, Y, and Z. As soon as that happens, I'm out. Peace. That's a problem. Talk about marriages between people starting off with a, with, with, with a prenup. <laughs> how about setting up in your marriage for it to fail before it even, you even give it a chance to start? I don't know how that works. world says that's smart. You'll find lawyers out there that say, eh, that's pretty good logic. The world's love is temporary. It's conditional. God's love is eternal, and it's without any conditions. For God so loved the world. You know, right now, the world, even in this state, God loves the world. Not that he's like, I love the world, man. This is so cool. This is so neat. Not that way. He loves it in that he offered his son for those very same people that will never believe on him. And that angers people, Christians, it does. It angers Christians because they see how the world treats them. Remember we talked about the Synod of Dort, the Calvinist convention there in 1618? in Germany. You know what's interesting about that is there's one of the conditions called limited atonement, which means Christ only died for the elect. That came up because people can't reckon how God would die for people that would never believe in him. 
They don't get it. You know why they don't get it? It's not a man-made concept. That's God's love, folks. It passes our understanding. And so they, made, they, they put a condition on it. They say, when God so loved, uh, for God so loved the world, they say, well, the, you know, the world is only those that would believe. No. The people that end up in hell for eternity, God still offered a payment for their sin. He still showed love to them. This is why we can't ever quit. Ever. We can't ever quit. But they'll take our lives. Then take our lives. That, that may be a price that we have to pay. I was talking to Jan about this when we were running around getting lunch for the family afterwards. And we were talking about how when you look at the model in Acts, and when I say the model, let's just talk about Peter and Paul, right? Those men died because they would not recant off the gospel. Paul would go into a new city. He'd start in the synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews. People would get saved, but people would also reject him. He'd be cast out of the synagogues, and then he'd go and talk to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would believe. And for whatever time that he was tolerated to stay in that city, he stayed, and he taught them what? The gospel and the doctrines of the New Testament. And then at a point, he was rejected and asked to leave or violently attacked, and he would leave. You know what Paul didn't do? He didn't try to you know, meet their standards for knowledge. He just kept giving the gospel. And that's something I think that you and I should, should learn from, especially when we're talking about what love is. It is the gospel message. So we need to know it and be willing to share it with people. There is no love outside of that. I, I can't love my daughter any more than what God has already done. And so I'd be wise to be ready to show that love to her. And what, how was the best way to do that? Introduce her to what God did for her early. Don't wait and think the world's going to do it. It's not. The world's set against that. Look at what it says there in verse 11, our, our text. Beloved, talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, if God so loved us, is that true? He did. What's the so loved us? What's that? Well, it's there in verses 9 and 10. Through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Through the substitution of the payment of our sins. We ought also to love one another. I, I want to show you what that looks like, okay? So just hold your spot and go to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, the joy book, as we used to call it in Bible college, it's the book of joy, and Paul loved the Philippian church, and they loved him. Verse 1, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's what love looks like. That's how Calvary Community Church should look like in treatment of one toward another. Read there again in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It shouldn't be difficult for people to serve. It is, okay, and we get that. We're Dealing with young believers, not everybody is going to learn and apply the truths of God. People are stubborn. You have stubborn children, you're going to have stubborn believers, okay? But the sign of a well-oiled church, biblically, is how easily they work together. And then look at that other one there, or vainglory. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing to you, teaching for 45 years in Sunday school, John Smith, Like, that why you're doing it? Because you want the glory? That's not love. Continue. But in lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Humility. In how you think. Now, some people take this to the weird spot. Well, I'm not going to say weird, because it's actually quite normal. Some people take this to mean that you got to think so low of yourself that, that you're like, you're stupid. 
You don't have any value at all. Oh, I'm just so dumb. I'm just so oh, silly me. Oh, I can't get anything right. That's not what that is. That, that's called the humble brag. It's actually more pride than a basic pride because <laughs> you're so focused on yourself. You're willing to talk about it all the time. Lowliness of mind is, is defined in verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Do you know what your brothers and sisters in Christ need? Need prayer for? Need help with physically, spiritually? If you don't, you can find out. And that's how you can better love one another. I want you to just look for a moment there in verse 1. If any comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, these things go together. If you don't love people, you're not walking in the Spirit. I got nothing to say to you other than that. It, it really makes me sad to hear people be bitter and unkind to each other and say, well, they're not walking in the Spirit. Well, neither are you. And that's just, that's not going to work. You, in no way is that going to be something that is a successful motivator for people to get right with God. They're already in an issue with God. Now they have an issue with you. Just be careful. That's a huge turnoff. All right, so back in 1 John. That's a good example you see there in Philippians 2. So love one another. Verse 11, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 now. No man hath seen God at any time. And that's true. Not even Moses. He had his face veiled there. And even then he was coming down from Mount Sinai, shining, okay? There are many times in the, New Test or in the Old Testament where theophanies occurred. And I believe those were appearances of Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And since we're real close to Hebrews, you can see that. Because some people may ask you that question. Well, how can we see him? You know, why, why is there no way to see him? Because he's pointing to Christ. Look what it says in Hebrews, real quick. To your left there, Hebrews chapter 1. In verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners... By the way, I think if Morgan Freeman should narrate verses, it's this. The, 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 the way that this just rolls off the tongue, it just sounds epic. I'm not going to do it for you, but... In diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. What a, what a description of the man who went to the cross. Amen. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. What does that mean? He is the image of the invisible God. Look in John 1, the gospel of John, not 1 John. The gospel of John in verse, or chapter 1 in verse 18. Page 1,115, uh, John chapter 1, verse uh, 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This was the ironies of the Jews at the time. They were looking and worshiping the invisible God, but they did not see the one who declared him. They crucified the one who declared him. This is the definition of human nature getting it so wrong in light of all the evidence. By the way, verse 17 is there. This kind of pertains to what we talked about this morning, but I want you to see that. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It's very important to note that in the Scripture. Because that's where we get the support for we should obey the law of liberty, the law in Christ. All right, back to 1 John chapter 4. We're still building there off of verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. Talked about theophanies and, of course, how Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And by the way, when Hebrews says his express image, it is the perfect image. Without fault or change. Listen to this. This is amazing. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. That means that the love that was already perfectly displayed on the cross can be expounded upon 
as we love one another in the body of Christ. What an opportunity. How many of you are thankful that Jesus died on the cross for you? I'm sure, this is not the let's identify our feelings time, but I'm sure you can tie an emotion to that. There's, there's one that comes to my mind. It'll make me weep right now. Thankfulness. That's, that's where I'm at. I can't get it out of my head, Miss Hamilton, who I told you before, my third grade teacher, I think she may have been a Russian spy. But right on the top of her whiteboard, I can see it now. Attitude determines altitude. I just remember that. And now I see in Philippians chapter 4, where it says to be thankful for everything. And I can't help but think, thank you, Lord, for the cross, for your blood, for the resurrection. And now I'm instructed here in 1 John, I can perfect on that love, not make it better because it's lacking, it's not lacking, but increase it by loving you. And so I want to do that. And loving you does not mean like, hey, man, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? What's your favorite team? And what's all this? You know, like doing everything that you want to do. Loving you is teaching you, spending time, being available. That's love. Showing you the word of God and then being an example of what that is lived out. That's how I can best love you who are already in the faith and the ones who are outside the faith. I, I should be ready to open my mouth and preach the gospel. Do you see love in the street preacher who yells at people with a bullhorn? There's a reason why you don't see love there, folks, because it's not there. I was reading commentaries, studying for tonight, and somebody said one of the greatest apologetics in the world, in the defense for God, is how believers love. And it's one of the things that we do the worst in this church age, the Laodicean church. Remember the description of the Laodicean church? You think you're wealthy, but you are poor, you are destitute, you are naked. I can't think of a better description than the church today. You go into third world countries and people that don't have wealth, as you and I would call wealth, they're smiling. They're excited about life. You know why? Because they're living for things that are greater than the material. One of the curses of the country that we live in is we have need for nothing. That's why people are sadly taking weapons to their, to their bodies and ending their lives. In a home where the lights are on and there's running water. <laughs> How do people get there? Because it's not the material things. It's the immaterial things. God's love has a material value in the person of Christ, but in the immaterial, it is demonstrated through the cross, through you and me. If you are listening to more world news and politics than you are reading your Bible, you ought to destroy whatever you're getting news from. I'm serious about that. I used to listen to Mark Levin every single day. I love that guy. Love that he's a constitutional lawyer. That's just cool. Love that he also sounds like Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc. a little bit. Next time you listen to Mark Levin, close your eyes and think of that little you know, green monster in Monsters, Inc. And you'll go, oh yeah, Mark Levin kind of sounds like that. I stopped listening to him years ago. You know why? Because when I was done, I didn't want to do anything with anybody that didn't believe like me. And I used to think at that time that I was getting smarter and smarter and wiser and wiser. I was just driving a wedge further and further away from the lost man. There are some things that I stay up to date on. A lot of my news, I've told you, I read. I don't listen to it and consume it. It's just not good. It doesn't put me in a godly state of mind. I certainly watch zero cable news. None of it. Because all of that, guys, is manufactured. Okay, we're getting into something that is not important. But a lot of it is a show when you hear lights, camera, action, it's probably produced to get an emotion out of you. I have a greater responsibility. You have a greater responsibility to love one another. Verse 13. Hereby we know, uh, uh, hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. The only way we're able to love and demonstrate that to others is because we have the Holy Spirit. If you look just a few 
verses over in, in 1 John 3, 23. It says, and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. As he gave us commandment, he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Obedience to God's commands after salvation is a sign that you're growing, a sign that you're walking with the Lord. I hope that some of you have had the chance to meet godly men and women that have shown love to you. I have a few in my head. One of the, you know, several of them are still alive. Freddie Coyle, that's a guy that shows godly love. Working with teenagers, you have no idea what it means to a young man to hear from another man that you have value beyond what the world says value is. Sadly, young boys are, are here and they're valuable because they meet a certain set of requirements for a career path. But God looks at that young man and says, I died for you, and you have, a, you have, a, you have an opportunity to serve me. That changes the kid's course of life. And those people who know how to love like that, they're powerful people. Not materially or in the world's definition of power, but in the eyes of God, they're extremely powerful people. And you can be like that. You can be that in somebody's life. And it's the greatest way to live, honestly. It's a selfless life. You don't have to worry about what gets done for you. What can I do for others? Verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. By the way, that's the first time that Savior is mentioned here in 1 John. The Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believe the love that God hath loved us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And you've got to look at 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. John is, is, is he just repeated himself, if you're paying attention. He just, those last three verses repeated what he said in verses 7, 8, and 9. But in 1 John 3, he calls back, or at the end of that passage there, he called back to 1 John 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Positionally, we're in Christ. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be when we die and we're with him and we have our new body. We don't have a sin nature. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And now, verse 3, is the progressive sanctification of the believer. And every man that hath this hope, what hope? The hope of eternal life in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You're keeping yourself away from sin. You, you are obeying God instead of disobeying him. And that cannot be in any other way but love. Listen to me. It cannot be in any other way but love. If you soul win and you don't love people, you're doing the wrong thing. Now, I'm not saying you have to only love the soul win, but what I'm saying is, if you don't care about people, you're probably not going to be a soul winner. If you don't care about kids, you're not going to be a Sunday school teacher. If you don't love the church, you're not going to come and meet the physical needs of the church, should there be any, and there's plenty. People don't know how to love today, yet they say they love God. You know what the Bible says about that? You're a liar. <laughs> you say that, that you have the truth, but you don't do the truth. That's the definition of a hypocrite. Can you imagine if God operated in that mode? Say one thing, do another. Salvation's by grace, but it's also by works too. Ha ha, I got you. Or, oh, I forgot. So if you go back to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Your motives will be exposed at the judgment seat of Christ. And I know that that expose sounds rough and, and hard. That's not the intent here. It's going to be revealed. The Bible says manifested. 
And God will judge you based on what you did and why you did it. I have seen quota soul winners that go out and they just soul win to get a yes. That may do good to some point, but at one point or another, it's going to fail. Because you know what? People can tell when you're selling them something. Can you tell when someone's ready to sell you something? You see him at Walmart, right? You're walking by the technology section and you see the guy. He's in the nice shirt. He's going around with a, with a, with a Spectrum clipboard and you're like, I got to go a different way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this guy's going to ask me. I mean, thankfully for a while, it's been the Frontier guy and I'm like, bro, we're already on the same page. High five. I'm already Frontier, you know? But people can tell when you're selling to them. People can tell when you're trying to open their mouths and stuff words in there. Now repeat after me. Good boy, good boy. That's not soul winning, folks. Some of your soul winning attempts will be very, very easy. Some of them will be incredibly hard. Some of them, it may last a lifetime. I think of my wife's grandmother who trusted Christ days before she passed. And the family worked on her for years. Put her faith in Christ, and then she was unresponsive the last few days of her life. I, we know where she is now. Somebody loved her enough to be patient to win her. Sometimes we're trying to run so fast to do the right thing, we forget why we're supposed to do the right thing. And some people don't like that message. And I'll be honest with you, you're going to burn out. You will burn out. If you're doing this for you, if you're doing this for the glory, oh, look at brother so-and-so. They've come to church for all this time. They've done this. They've done that. What's going to happen when that praise never comes? People are going to stop. They're going to stop. That's not what was happening in the early church. They were loving people so much, they're willing to risk their lives to reach them. And what it says here is that we'll have boldness in the day of judgment you learn how to love people like God loved them, and it permeates what you do. It's your motivation for service. You can stand before the Lord with boldness, with confidence. Verse 18. And there is no fear in love. And we have to understand what kind of love? In godly love, there's no fear. God is never going to condemn you if you're loving people. And you've got to qualify that. What does it mean to love people? And there's a lot of things that that means. Primarily, it's getting the gospel to them. If you love somebody, you'll be prepared to have a tract. You'll be prepared to share the gospel. You'll have witty conversation starters, and you'll have points of discussion ready to talk to people based on the answers that they give you. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how you're supposed to be. Because you love people, you don't want them to go to hell. That's not the only way that you love people. How about other believers? You pray for them. It's got to be enough to talk to them. See how they're doing. Remember what they're saying. How else can you love people? Rebuking them when they're in error? Yeah. Speaking the truth in love? People forget the love part. They think speaking the truth in anger like it's the pastor's job to yell at the person that's not doing something right. No, I'm supposed to lovingly bring them to the truth and demonstrate how they can get right. This isn't a dictatorship. But that's how some people run their Christian lives. Do like me or you better flee because I'm going to beat you. <laughs> it's not love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. What's the comparison here? If love is not fear because fear has torment, then perfect love must be what? Peace. Boy, Philippians 4, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding. I can't sum it up better than that. That's why I love this passage. It just speaks really clearly for itself. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You're not mature in love yet if you still have fear. If you still have torment and that's what's ruling your life. I'm not talking about the fear to go talk to people. That's something that is 
quite natural, but if it's a fear that keeps your mouth closed and your feet steady, you need to review that. We love him, verse 19, because he first loved us. This is called a flower verse. It, it, it is the culmination of everything that was said before it. We love him because he first loved us. You go ask Dr. Arnold why he's a soul winner. He will tell you, because I want the world to know that I love the Father. I have heard him say that. And that's a quote from what Jesus said. But that's Dr. Arnold's motivation. Yes, he doesn't want people to go to hell. And he'll tell you that. But that man loves God. And he demonstrates his love for the Lord by reaching people with the gospel. He's 80 years old. Months away from 81, and he's in an RV, folks. You ever driven an RV on the highway? It's not what you call smooth sailing. It's actually stressful steering. <laughs> it's very difficult. No one likes you. You're always in somebody's way. And boy, when you get to a lane with construction, you're going 10 miles an hour, especially if it's me. And then nobody's happy with you. Why would a man like that do something? Because that's a man who cares about the one who hasn't heard yet. And he's an encouragement to the believers in the things that he does. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You know what this means? The way that we love one another is how people see God. Wow. What a responsibility. We are literally a mirror for what God should look like. The way that we act should be a reflection of God's love. And if there's hate in the church and there's hate in your heart, how is anyone going to see the proper image of God? How are you going to be able to walk with the Lord when you live that way? I don't have the answers for you tonight, my friends. Those are for you to find in your own private prayer, talking to the Lord, exercising what the Scripture says here. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. That's Christian growth. That's the whole of this Christian life. The question, how much do you love me? You can close your Bibles. If you remember what God said to Peter, what Jesus said to Peter after his resurrection, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What was the instruction each time to Peter after he said, yes, yes, yes? What, what did he say? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus is asking Peter to qualify that love. Feed my sheep, Peter. And then you see the man who rose up and led a whole council in truth, who traveled all the way to Caesarea to reach an Italian man who was not yet saved, but seeking. How literally Peter opened up the floodgates for the gospel to be brought to you and me. <laughs> you think he fed the sheep? Yeah. That means he loved the Lord. I know that these topics can be difficult and they seem somewhat repetitive, but I just want to encourage you. It's repetitive because it's very basic. It's very basic. It's the actual implementation of these things that becomes complex. Each one of you, I want you to imagine for a moment, you are your own, you're your own set of influences, and all that makes a path, okay? It's like all these different avenues and cuts in, in a pipe, and God pours the water into your life, and if you're willing, you're going to reach so many people in so many different areas, but so many times I, I think we put our hand over what God's trying to do and we say, no, I just want to do this, right? I just want to do that. And we don't let him have the rule in our lives as he should. That can change as you learn to love. That's what the Christian life matures into. It's not more knowledge. It's not more degrees. It's not more successful experiences. It's learning how to love people. And that primarily is in the gospel being shared with the lost person and then love towards one another. And this is how God's love was demonstrated to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
That's the basis of how when you look at your husband or your wife before you get married and you say, I do, it should be that love that motivates you to say, I do. If Christ loved me enough while I was a sinner, then I can love this person for the rest of their life and the rest of mine. All that springboards from it. And faith in Christ is all that is needed for a man to get saved, is to believe on what the Lord did, which was his demonstration of love. Now that you've believed, you receive as a free gift everlasting life, not of any works. You enter into this relationship with the Lord, which is fellowship. I don't, I don't really like to use that word because, you know, relationships begin and end in the world, but it's a fellowship with the Lord. You are his child and he is now your father. He's going to correct you and has many blessings for you as you obey him. Well, pastor, how do I obey him? Love one another. And you realize how much is entailed with that. I can't go bullet point by bullet point on what it is to love one another. You just have to be willing to do it. And the Spirit, as we saw, He's going to lead you and guide you and direct you in what that love looks like. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much for everything that you've taught us in your word tonight. I'm very excited about chapter 5 and the apologetic defenses that are set up there, but Lord, I, I think for many of us here tonight, there are things that we continually learn from the Scripture that reveal some things about ourselves that need work. And so I pray, Lord, for those who were impacted tonight, those who are listening and are sensitive and are willing to receive correction, I pray that they would learn to properly apply those things. I also pray, Lord, for maybe those on the internet who heard the gospel presentation for the first time, I pray that they would put their faith in you. Thank you for the Awana ministry, and thank you for all the opportunities we have here to reach people. Bless us, Lord, as we head back to our homes and bring us back here safely for our midweek service. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. If you enjoyed today's episode of Bible Line, make sure to subscribe to the channel and share this video with a friend. Do you have a Bible question? Send us an email, questions at BibleLineMinistries.org, and we'll do our best to get you an answer. Or you can leave your question in the comments of this video. Be sure to check the links in the description for more clear Bible teaching. Bible Line is a ministry of Calvary Community Church located in Tampa, Florida.